next week Andy is going to begin a new series in uh, the Song of Songs, which I am very excited about because I'm not doing the talks. And I should be very interested to hear what Andy has to say. But because tomorrow is New Year's Day, I've been asked to speak this week about New Year's resolutions. And I thought, gosh, do people even do New Year's resolutions anymore? I don't know. I sort of see the appeal of them. Don't you? I mean, you have a bad habit and you want to break it. Something you dislike about yourself you'd like to change. A, a diet, a, a new exercise regime, to stop eating quite so much chocolate. And you think, well, that's, that's, that stuff all belongs to the self of the last year. I'm starting again. This is a new year. It's a new me. We're going to make a fresh start. There's lots of kind of incentive for us to begin again as the year begins again. A, a definitive point in time to mark a definitive break with the past. And the language of resolutions is not alien to the scriptures either. Paul tells the Corinthians, doesn't he, I've resolved to know nothing among you apart from Christ Jesus. Paul made resolutions. So why wouldn't we make resolutions? And I think there are at least a couple of reasons why we probably don't, many of us. One is simply experience. Many of us are long enough in the tooth to know that we've tried to give up chocolate for for New Year and made it to about the third day, or beer or, or something else, or, or you've signed up for the gym, you know, that's, that's the classic one, is that you sign up for the gym in January and don't go until June. And seven times out of ten, the surveys tell us, we give up, we, we don't make it. In other words, our world-weary experience tells us we're going to give up anyway, so why bother trying in the first place? Our problem is change is hard, isn't it? And therefore, secondly, we need resolutions that are worth pursuing and worth pursuing Christianly. What I mean is this. We need a change goal, a resolution that is of supreme value. Something that will motivate us to keep going. Something we would give our right arm to achieve. And we need to do it Christianly. That is, we need to be properly supported. You, know, you, you try and change yourself by yourself, and it's so easy to slip back into old ways, isn't it? We need each other and God's help to encourage us and support us along the way. We need to do it Christianly, by which I mean that when we fail, and we will fail, we don't give up. That's the classic, isn't it? You, know, you, you, you promise you're not going to eat chocolate, you get to sort of day three, you have a little nibble and that's it. You, you might as well pack it all in. Instead of saying, no, that's, that's a slip and I'm going to start again. But as Christians, we, we're used to repenting, aren't we? Making a mistake, repenting, clinging to the forgiveness that comes through the cross of Christ and trying again. And what I want us to do this morning is to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 in its wider context. Verse 12 gives us our resolution. Look what Paul says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And verse 13 gives us a rather magnificent motivation for or because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. 
So let's look at that together and see what it is Paul would like us to resolve to do in 2018. First then, work out your own salvation, verse 12. And I think it might be helpful at this point to look at these uh, words and, and, and see what they can and what they can't mean. Paul says, work out your salvation. And it can't mean God's done some of it and now you need to finish it off. God has done some of the work and now you've got to do loads of good things to finish off your salvation. As though salvation is a cooperative thing. The cross work of Christ in verse 8 is sufficient to save us. Paul is not saying that in some way God contributes some percentage and we contribute the other percentage and that's how together we, we work out what our salvation will look like. That's one of the ways we use working out, isn't it? We, we work out a, a difficult maths problem. We work out how all the wires that go in the back of the TV and plug into all the other things work so that the TV comes on. We work it out. But work out here has much more the sense of strenuous exercise in the gym. In fact, the word is gymnase. Working out in the gymnasium. The way you go to a spin class and throw yourself into it or, or pound the road to keep fit or do your lengths in the pool. That's the way we work out, isn't it? And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Apply that form of exercise to your spiritual life. Fight for it. Just as you work the pounds off and turn fat into muscle, so in your spiritual life, work it out. But that doesn't mean you are saved, but now you have to work at keeping yourself in salvation. Paul doesn't say that God is... God's done some of the work and now he's taken his hands off the tiller and you've got to do the rest. God has not simply sent Jesus to die for us and left it up to us to keep ourselves Christians. God is not being honest. Let's look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you. But then you might think, if God is sovereign and he is so involved in our lives, then presumably I can just let go and let God. Get on with it. Let him do all of the work. But that's also not what Paul says, is it? Now, it's true, God is working in us to change us. But the word for work out here is for strenuous exercise. And so we are to work hard, like we do in the gym, at the same time as God is working hard in us. Essentially, Paul is saying, if you want a New Year's resolution that will work, then you need to be committed to this, because this is what God is doing in 2018. This is what God is doing. Get on board with the programme. What Paul is saying here is, you are saved if you are a Christian here this morning. You are saved. But now you need to work at living that out of living like a saved person, living out the implications of your salvation, work out from your salvation. And Paul gives us a good hint about what this means just in the same verse, doesn't he? Look earlier in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, 
continue to work out your salvation just as you've always obeyed so now work out do you see working out your salvation has looked like obedience to christ in the past and now that paul has gone away he encourages them to keep obeying to keep working out their salvation working out looks like fighting to obey christ and, and I guess that's precisely where we might feel discouraged, just like the person who buys the gym membership but never actually goes to the gym. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will already have found out that it's not easy to obey Christ. We try and we fail and we try and then, like as not, we give up, just like the person trying to give up chocolate or beer. Sometimes, of course, it's easy to obey, isn't it? Perhaps when you're with other Christians. Perhaps you find that when you're in company with one of the elders, you think, I'm going to be on my best behaviour today. Perhaps you have a, a poor character in your life with whom you find it really easy to be a, a good, solid Christian. But alone, on the daily grind, out of the view of other Christians, it's hard, isn't it? And Paul knows this, which is why he says, you were obedient when you were with me, and now that I've gone away, still fight. Now, change isn't easy. Paul knows that. You've got a gymnase. But we are not alone. And so, secondly, work out your salvation because God is working out your salvation. Verse 13. Here God is called, uh, literally, the one who works in you. Uh, that is a name for God. He's the one who works in you. God the Holy Spirit lives in every single Christian. And he's working. He works in us, so we should work. Uh, but the logic here is even tighter than that, isn't it? Just look again at verse 13. What is it that the Spirit works in us? He works in you to do two things, to will and to act, literally to will and to work in order to fulfil his good purpose. There are three parts to that, just let's look at those together for a moment. Uh, for his good purpose means that the Holy Spirit aims to cause us to live such good lives that our lives are pleasing to God. That is his aim. To will means that God is working to change our desires. The Holy Spirit knows that we cannot live obedient lives if actually we really, really want to live disobedient lives. It's really hard, isn't it, to want to like a foodstuff that you hate. <coughs> uh, for me, escargot, prawns, liver, frankly any internal organ of any animal I'm not a big fan of. And... No matter how much I screw myself into a ball, I can't make myself like those things. And so it is that when somebody is converted, God gives us a new heart and slowly but surely changes our desires so that we, we no longer love the things that God hates, but we begin to love the things that he loves. We begin to see the beauty of our Saviour and the blessings that flow to those who love him. And we begin to desire him and the life he would work in us more and more. That is the Spirit's work of changing our wills. And to act here or, or to work means that God not only works 
in our wills to desire to please him, but in our actions to actually live lives that do please him. We are being called this morning to be co-workers with God, who is already working in us. He's changing our hearts and lives so that we live to please him, but it's not easy. For us to bear fruit, we need to be totally committed to working hard, to gymnasing, to, to, to pounding it out in our spiritual lives. Now notice, this doesn't save us. If you're a Christian, you are already as saved as you will ever be. But it produces the fruit in us that corresponds to being saved people. God wants us to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now just think about how that motivates us for a moment. We, we, we look on our past efforts at New Year's resolutions to eat better, to do more exercise, to be a nicer person, and we think, I can't do those things. And God says, stop worrying about those things and focus on these things. Get involved with doing the things that I'm doing in you. That's where success will be found. Be totally committed to the change in your life that I am already working for your good and for my glory. This is what I'm doing, and it should be what you are doing as well. And this will work. God is working out our salvation for us. But it will take effort. There is still in our flesh a habit of the old life, isn't there? You can't expect to simply know it in your head, walk out from here this morning thinking, I now know that God is wanting to work in me to change me and not make any changes yourself. That would be just like knowing how to ride a bike and never getting on it and getting your exercise. So will you make time? Will you clear other things from your diary in order to visit the spiritual gym? Will you spend time in the habits that will form godly character in you in 2018? Before we think about what those, uh, those practical steps will be, we need to look at a little of the context of those two verses. What exactly should we be working at? What sort of exercises are going to produce the sort of fruit in us that we actually want? In what way should we do them? To what end? And this is where the context comes in. Verse 12 begins, after all, with a therefore. And we should always ask what the therefore is there for. How does it connect verse 12 to what goes before? And in fact, verse 12 is the last of a series of therefores. There's, a, there's one in verse 2, there's another one in verse 9, that link this whole section together that we had read by John. Everything from uh, 1 verse 27 through to 2 verse 18 is a single section in Paul's thoughts. And what I want us to do just briefly is to look through, uh, the, pick the bones out of this, uh, this section to see how Paul um, explains what verses 12 and 13 are really about. And we begin in verse 27 of chapter 1 because it basically says the same thing as verse 12 does. Look down at it with me. Paul here says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves or live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, 
conducting yourselves and working out your salvation are the two commands in this whole section. And they basically mean the same thing. In both places, Paul is calling on Christians to live powerfully changed lives. Indeed, I think verse 12 is really where Paul lands 1 verse 27. He gives us the command in verse 27 and then gives us a lot of theology and then comes back to the command in verse 12 and says, let me explain what this means. And in between, Paul shows us why and in what way we should do this. And so as we look at more detail at verses 27 through to to 2 verse 18 here, just let's note the two dangers that our passage raises for us. At first, there is a danger of not standing under persecution. We see that in verse 27 itself. Whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, look, there are people who would come and tear you away from Christ. There are people who would come and persecute you. And there's a danger that you don't stand firm. There's a danger that we don't strive together. The first threat, Paul says, is that we are divided from one another. And then persecution comes and picks off the weakest from the herd. Secondly, look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Here Paul points to the real dangers within the church. Where does the the disunity come from? How is it we become divided from each other? Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Self-glory is the, the Greek here. A church that is divided will be easy pickings when persecution comes. And a church will be divided if we allow vain glory self-centeredness, rivalry to rise up in the church. Therefore, says Paul, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out, because if you don't, there's a real danger that some people at Christ Church Earlsfield will not make it to the end of the race. When persecution comes, some will be in danger of falling away because we're divided from each other. If you're going to commit to one New Year's resolution this year, can I suggest that the one that keeps us Christians through 2018 is probably the one that you need to be committed to above all others? Okay, let's look at uh, 1 verse 27 onwards briefly uh, to see what, what working it out means. Over the Christmas week away, we sat down to watch the Lord of the Rings films. I don't know if you've seen them recently. They tend to be on over Christmas, and we've got the extended edition, so we spent 14 hours watching the Lord of the Rings movies. And the thing you notice about the battle scenes in the Lord of the Rings is this. You don't go into battle by yourself. You go into battle surrounded by your comrades. If you're alone, and at the end of the Fellowship in the first film, there's a sequence in which the the crowd, the, the fellowship are split into little groups and they become easy pickings and one of the characters dies. I'm sorry if you haven't seen the films, but there you go. And the first thing Paul wants us to know here is working out your salvation means striving together. Look at verse 27 again. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm, plural you, Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. 
without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And the key here is the word one. One spirit as one for the faith of the gospel. You won't be frightened when persecution comes if the church is one. If it's united. Like the fellowship, if you're divided from one another in little cliques, you will struggle to stand. If your, your sense of, of self is such that you divide yourself from the church, you will not stand. But if we strive together, if we struggle together, then you won't be afraid when persecution comes. Because you know you will stand. But, but unity of what kind? What sort of oneness and on what basis are we to... To, to strive for unity. And Paul says, well, look, it's unity of mind. That's verses 1 to 5. Paul's already hinted about this in, in verse 27. One soul in the faith of the gospel, as one in the faith of the gospel. But Paul doesn't simply mean sharing in the same faith, as in, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. We share one common faith. It's not as simple as that. It's not gathering as Christians in a room together who share only the fact that we trust Jesus together. Look at verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. One love, one mind, one spirit. Our theology matters. The things we think about God, and Jesus in particular, matters. Having the same thinking matters. It's practical. It works out in us being united together. We're to have one mind. Of course, lots of people share a unity of mind in some way. I was coming back on the train uh, yesterday from the north of Scotland, and we stopped off in Newcastle, and a bunch of Brighton Hove Albion supporters got on the train with us. And they are united in all sorts of ways. They wear the same outfits. They sing the same songs. They are united in some way. They share a common core value or mission statement. We are to be united in the gospel. We're to share a gospel mind together. Indeed, in verse 5, Paul tells us exactly what sort of mind we're to have. One which does not come naturally to us. We're to fight, to gymnase, to get this mind amongst us. Have this mind among yourselves. We'll see verse 5. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We're to have Jesus' mind. What will unite the church? When we think and behave like Jesus. If we're going to stand together, we're going to have to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. If we're going to strive side by side in working out our salvation, then we need to think like Jesus. And this he exemplifies in verses 6 to 11. We are to share the self-sacrificial mind of Christ. Now, this little passage, uh, you can see in your, your text, is so poetic. It's probably uh, one of the earliest Christian hymns. It might even have been composed by Paul himself. Paul certainly grabs hold of it here and says, here is profound truth. Let me lay it out in front of you. Paul says in verse 3 that rivalry and vain conceit, self-glory, is totally destructive to the church. And makes us susceptible to persecution. But, but Jesus didn't live for self-glory, did he? He gave up his glory. Now, Jesus begins with 
eternal glory. He is in the position of God. He is in very nature God. He has equality with God, but he doesn't use it to his own advantage. He doesn't use it to bring glory to himself. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing. Not in his substance, but took on the nature of a servant. He became veiled. His glory was veiled. The, The transfiguration glory that Jesus had in all eternity becomes veiled in a man, and not just any man, but a servant. Humbling himself a second time, not simply as a man, but to the cross. Killed as a a vagrant preacher, a, a troublemaker. And Jesus did this, according to verse 8, because he was obedient to God. What does Paul want for us? As you have always done, continue to obey. Jesus is a model for us. He became a man to suffer like us, persecution like us, and crucially, the death that we deserve so that we might have the glory like him. It's a perfect model, isn't it? He didn't grasp at glory and live for himself. And because he gave up his glory to serve others by giving his whole life, so God raised him up, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, Jesus did this self-sacrificial glory emptying of himself for others. Therefore God highly exalted him. Therefore, verse 12, we should obey We should live like Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this self-sacrificial mind among yourselves. So that when persecution comes, you remember Jesus. He was happy to be persecuted for the sake of others. So that you will not fall away. So that you will be embedded in a community of self-sacrificial, other-person-loving community. We can try and face persecution and temptation by ourselves because because of our pride, because of our self-glory, because we want to do it for ourselves and we will fail. Or we can have the mind of Christ who laid aside his glory in order to serve us. If we have that mind among us as a whole Christian community here, if we consider others better than ourselves, we will love and care for each other. And crucially, we will not be afraid when suffering comes. Because we'll be a spiritually well-drilled military unit, able to stand together. If we're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that eternity rests on our standing, and knowing that this is what God wants for us, is working in us, then what do we need? Well, crucially, we don't need to demand that others serve us. Do you notice that? Rather, Jesus takes the initiative, and so should we, to think of others better than ourselves. We will stand as a community when each one of us looks to the other's interests. When we take responsibility to serve 
each other, invest in each other, take time to encourage each other to have the mind of Christ. We need to think like Christ, to live like Christ in 2018. Do we need more motivation? As I was thinking about this passage, I reflected on a guy, I can't even remember his name now, it's embarrassing, a guy I used to play football with when I was a teenager, and I bumped into him in a pub years later, we were 18, 19, it's a long time ago now, and I hadn't seen him for years, and he'd joined the army at 16 and gone off on tour in Bosnia, and he'd come under fire, his unit had come under fire from the hills, um, and only two people in his unit had survived, him and one other guy uh, who'd been badly injured. The rest had been killed by IEDs and by uh, fire from the mountainside. This guy was, he was 18 and had the eyes of a much, much older man. He'd seen things that nobody should have to see, experienced things that nobody should have to experience. And it had wrecked him emotionally, he, he seemed not even to be in his own body. Well, friends, how much more devastating is it when members of the body of Christ uh, break off from the body, come under persecution and fall away? Do we need more motivation to be invested in each other, uh, gymnasium with all our strength to live for Christ this coming year? As we end then, let me say a few words on what this might actually look like for us. Paul gives us some hints in verses 14 to 18, which John didn't read for us, but I'm going to just dip into for a moment. And the first thing Paul says is, working out looks like contentment. We've got to fight within ourselves to be content with where God has placed us. The opposite of contentment here in verse 14 is, is grumbling and arguing. That's what the world is like, isn't it? You know, even with all your Christmas presents still at the foot of your bed, you kind of go, I need more. I need more than what I've got. And other people have got it, and I need to take it. I'm going to fight. I'm going to grumble about the way the world is. And Paul says, not so with you. The fight with ourselves is a fight to be content with the gospel, to be content with Christ to be content with where we're heading, to be content with where God has placed us for this season of our lives. And so perhaps you know somebody in our church who is in the habit of grumbling. Would you make it your aim in the early part of this year to sit down with that person and encourage them to be content? Don't let them fall off the body because of their grumbling. Secondly, Paul says, it will look like selfless, sacrificial service of others. We've seen this already in what Jesus has done. And we might well want to ask, what does, what does our service look like? Uh, Paul uses the language in verse 17 of himself being poured out like a drink offering. And the thing about a drink offering is it's, it's an extra offering you pour on top of the main sacrifice. And Paul says, look, you guys, you Philippians, you're making the primary sacrifice. As you pour yourselves out day after day for each other, you're making the primary sacrifice. And I'm very happy to pour myself out on top of that. Paul's sacrifice as a minister to this church is only added to the sacrifice of the members for each other. 
But then notice what this, uh, this sacrificial nature of the Philippian church elicits from Paul. He's so encouraged that they're working together to work out their salvation, fighting for each other, striving to have the same mind as Christ amongst them, that he's totally prepared to even die for them. Does that make sense? Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Even if I should die, I'm delighted with that. Because all I'm doing is adding my sacrifice to yours. The selfless sacrifice of the church encourages the elders amongst us to put ourselves to death for you. Isn't that a wonderful encouragement? As you guys, as a church, live for each other, serve each other. It is so encouraging. Certainly for myself, I think I can speak for the elders. We're enormously encouraged by so much of the self-sacrificial mutual love that happens in our church family that we're encouraged to, to pour ourselves out more and more for, for others. And so what will 2018 look like for Christchurch Earlsfield? Being committed to think like Christ, engaging with the Bible, with each other, with, with, but with anything that is going to get the mind of Christ into each one of us. It looked like restlessly striving to cooperate with God who is growing us to be like Christ. To put others first, to do it with joy and contentment. And as each one strives, as each one of us looks to the interests of the other, we each encourage one another to keep going, don't we? Do you not find that you're encouraged as you see the godliness of those around you? You're encouraged to keep going. And certainly we as, as a leadership are encouraged to pour ourselves out for you. As we do this, know this. No division within and no persecutions from without will cut anyone loose from our church family if we are committed to serving each and every one. I think that is a worthy New Year's resolution, isn't it? Shall I pray? Our Father, our longing is to be more like Christ, to be conformed to Christ, but it is hard. Teach us, please, to have the mind of Christ, to be willing to sacrifice everything of ourselves for the sake of others, to put aside those things that would distract us, that would take us away from him and take away our service from one another. Help us to pour ourselves out so that uh, we would uh, be one strong, single body, a unit of people who love each other and serve each other and become like Christ day by day. Change our thinking, our Father, change our wills, and so change our lives. And please enable us to strive with everything in us to work with you as you work in us. For your namesake. Amen.